Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Market dislocations in 2022 have left few places for investors to hide, as equities and bonds are both looking at losses through the first five months. And while municipals are close to 10% year-to-date losses, they're performing as expected given a macro environment that's largely being guided by the Fed's battle against rising inflation. Even so, key sales points for exempt bonds are strong credit, exempt income, and uncorrelated risks are hard to hear above the headlines of persistent outflows and extremely soft due supply. This is where the age-old argument of passive versus active management comes into play. And while the trend has been for investors to slide toward cheaper beta, can the case still be made for active managers to generate excess alpha, especially in sloppy markets such as what we've been experiencing? On this month's Masters of the Universe, we're joined by David Hammer, Head of Municipal Bond Portfolio Management at PIMCO, to discuss the current macro view for municipals and bonds, breaking out the old crystal ball to look forward through the duration of 2022 and more. As always, I'm also joined by Amanda Albright from Bloomberg News. Welcome, everyone. So, David, I want to start off. I don't know if you remember. I called you, I want to say it was probably late summer in 2020. And, you know, obviously it was like sort of in the throes of the initial stages of COVID. And I was picking your brain about if someone really disliked the credit in munis, how would you do that in a market that's completely unshortable? And it's okay if you don't remember this phone call, but it sticks out as me as very interesting and sort of just solidified to me how the market is just sort of bulletproof in a sense about expressing negative sentiment. Yeah, you know, I remember that call. And at the time, uh, you know, things were quite unclear in the world yeah. and in, uh, you know, the muni market broadly. You know, but one of the benefits of muni credit uh, is that there are investable sectors that are you know, truly recession-proof. These are uh, essential service monopolies on things like water and power. Uh, These are sales taxes collected at a, you know, a state level that are heavily diversified. So, you know, I think when uh, we embarked on some of the most strenuous stress testing we've ever conducted in my career, you know, we were asking ourselves questions like, uh, if this economic contraction causes state and local government tax collections to decline by 25%. Uh, what does my uh, municipal bond holding look like? And, you know, there were pockets of the market where we saw increased default probabilities, but, you know, there are also many parts of the market, the majority of the market, where we looked at and said, you know, this is a, even in this very dire scenario, it's a, a downgrade of a notch or two internally. It's really not default risk. You know, historically, uh, A-rated munis default less than AA-rated corporates. So, you know, there's not a lot of credit risk in many parts of the muni market. Uh, there certainly are in some, but uh, the correlation over long periods of time, you know, they tend to be with interest rates and interest rate volatility. And certainly we've seen a lot of that this year. Yep. So look, obviously fast forward two years and it seems like everything is healed from a credit standpoint, right? I, I feel like we've had countless upgrades to like almost every credit I can think of, except probably like senior housing, um, that that sort of still seems to be in the weeds as far as recovery. But you know, everything seems to have been improved, and that's given a lot of tailwind to the sector. 
you know, how does that sort of tee up with how poorly returns are this year? It must be frustrating for, you know, a team that does a lot of, you know, actual credit research to say, hey, we're loving what's going on, but just, we're just a slave to where rates are. Yeah, well, yeah, the, the, the price action, you mentioned at the outset, uh, yeah. it's the worst in 50 years in the muni market. Um, yeah. IG indices are down 8 to 10%. High yield indices are down 11.5%. Riskier high yield strategies in the 13 to 14% range. Muni close end funds that have a longer duration profile, you know, they're down 20% plus. Yeah. Um, just looking at simple yields, treasury yields from two to 10 years are up somewhere between 125 and 175 basis points. A-rated muni yields are up uh, significantly more than that in the neighborhood of uh, 225 to 235 basis points year to date. So you know, you're right. Credit is improving. There are more upgrades and downgrades. This is uh, you know, the best uh, muni credit cycle moving in a positive direction uh, <laughs> in my career, You know, going back since, since pre-financial crisis. What's occurring today, it's a, it's a mismatch between demands for liquidity and the supply of liquidity in the muni market. And this is an issue that we've been highlighting you know, for years here at PIMCO. It's, it's really changed the way we manage our daily liquid strategies. Uh, we've launched some new products uh, that don't offer daily liquidity um, because of this phenomenon. And you know, just to, to put some numbers to it, the Federal Reserve tracks broker-dealer holdings of muni bonds. So this is... Yeah inventory to, to intermediate risk transfers and buy and sell muni bonds every day. You know, that used to be 50 to 60 billion pre-financial crisis. Uh, today, that number bounces around somewhere between 10 and 15 billion. Now, on the, that's the, the supply side of liquidity. On the demand side, daily liquid muni vehicles have grown from 400 billion to over a trillion. So if you think about the amount of daily liquidity available as a percentage of daily liquid assets under management, that's moved from 10 or 15% of the market yeah. to one to 2%. So it just doesn't take much. And this year, there's been an excess of $45 billion in outflows. Uh, it's now surpassed the, the March 2020 outflow cycle. Yeah. That's about three and a half times total broker-dealer inventory. So when this occurs in the muni market, uh, the marginal price setter moves from a U.S. retail investor that pays the highest federal income tax rate uh, to crossover buyers. And these are banks and insurance companies that pay a 15% tax rate, crossover investors that are just looking at total return potential and don't value the tax exemption at all. And the, the big price move in the muni market it has been, you know, in our view, an overcorrection to this crossover buyer that doesn't value the tax exemption. We see plenty of examples today where uh, high quality munis that are you know, double A rated, A rated, they're trading at 95 to 100%, in some cases, even cheaper, uh, a higher yeah. tax exempt yield than where it's parity bond trades in taxable markets. So this is a, it's a technical event. Uh, we should expect these, these bouts of illiquidity to persist. Um, you know, it's really changed the way we think about and manage our, many of our strategies here at PIMCO. Kind of teeing on the liquidity issue, right? We do a chart each January when we put out like our shifting marketplace report, and it basically just looks at the number of broker dealers in the industry, and it's been declining over the last ten years, right? Absolutely, like there's no really new entrants there. 
how much of this liquidity or illiquidity in the market is due to just less folks committing balance sheet rather than the same folks committing less balance sheet? Yeah, you know, there's a there's a little bit of both. There are some new entrants, and, and the new entrants are primarily in uh, the algorithmic trading system space, right? So yeah. there's kind of two ways we think about liquidity. One is how many good prices can I get in any given day? Mm-hmm. And then the other is what's the total depth? How much capital is there available? And the number of good prices we're getting in a, a normal market has actually improved. Um, there's been a proliferation of algorithmic trading systems where it used to be an individual trader, you know, bidding bid one and one at a time. There's now systems that can bid thousands or tens of thousands of bonds. Yeah. Um, but, but the problem here, it's just that it's the quantity of liquidity and that's due to less broker dealers. Yeah. Um, some of the larger broker dealers running less capital than they used to. And, and that's really the source of the problem. I think in a, a good environment where muni investors are getting lots of good prices from algorithmic trading systems, you know, can be a little bit uh, misleading uh, because the total quantity of liquidity has done nothing but decline over the last ten or twelve years. Yeah. David, what's your um, what's your headspace been like this year? A lot of people have said that this has been, even though it, like the numbers are pretty staggering, like a market down ten percent. Like people have said, it's been really orderly. Like. Do you find that the sell-off has been orderly? Are you stressed? Is this like the new normal for you? Like what, what has this year been like? Yeah, you know, we changed the way we manage portfolios here around liquidity a while ago. And so what I mean specifically by that is in our daily liquid vehicles, when munis are exceptionally rich, uh, you know, we will run 10 or 15% cash. Um, liquidity works in both directions. So in 2021, it was a big inflow year Muni's got to their richest valuations ever against high quality corporate bonds and treasuries. So uh, in these environments that the the market structure, the lack of liquidity gives us confidence that we can reduce risk, uh, we can raise cash, and that helps us uh, mitigate some outflows that we're likely to see as others do. And then also really, you know, go on offense here. And that's where I think our team gets excited in environments like this. Uh, there are lots of uh, municipal bonds that are being sold because of these demands for liquidity. Uh, in some cases, you know, perhaps some um, need to, to reduce leverage. Uh, and these can be really excellent opportunities if you have dry powder. So yeah. I think the, the, the current environment is consistent with our, our framework and how we think about the muni market. It has been more orderly in the sense that it's just played out over a longer time frame. It's taken five months for $45 billion in outflows this year. Uh, where it was only, you know, about six weeks or so in, in 2020. So how much of the sell-off, like, do you think is um, priced in? Like, you know, how much more of a sell-off could could we see? Could it last longer? Yeah, yeah it's a really good question. I, I think there's two ways to look at it. One is, you know, kind of versus other fixed income asset classes, and the other is just, just absolute yields. Um, so on the first point, you know, the, the big move has already happened in that munis have gone from trading at 65 or 70% of treasuries and corporate bonds to 90 to 100% or more. And it's, it's this crossover investor base, including you know, banks and insurance companies. And we manage money for, for many of these, uh, these types of investors. It's a great opportunity to add and, and that's what they're doing. So you know, I, I think the relative value has shifted and muni stand out as exceptionally attractive versus uh, all taxable fixed income, whether it's treasuries or, or investment grade corporate bonds or high yield corporate bonds. 
you know, the, the next question is, you know, what's priced in in terms of monetary policy tightening? Um, the Fed has shifted this year from uh, supporting growth to, to fighting inflation. Uh, the Fed's tightening faster than what was anticipated at the beginning of the year. This is causing trade volatility to go up. This tends to be highly correlated with, with muni outflows. Um, but when we look you know, out over the next one or two years, uh, the combination of, of Fed tightening, depressed consumer confidence, ongoing supply chain disruption, uh, all of this is causing us to downgrade our, our growth forecasts. Um, if you look at recent data, and just one example, looks like the US economy is likely to experience an e-commerce or freight recession this year. Um, and a lot of the inventory restocking that had been supporting growth, it's all now in the rearview mirror. Um, so when we forecast our growth and our economics team does here at PIMCO, you know, they're now looking at one and a half to 2% growth over the balance of this year, down to one to one and a half percent growth next year. That's below trend. Um, so, so taken all together, you know, this points to uh, a late cycle uh, environment. Um, another way to look at it is just how much have, you know, two and five year muni yields moved. And with a two year A rated muni at 2.6%, uh, or a five year A rated muni at uh, three and a quarter percent, these are the highest yields, simple yields since early 2009. Uh, if I look at the very front end of two years and I go back to uh, 2007, Two-year muni yields were somewhere around three and three quarters percent in May of 2007. So that's about 115 basis points higher than where we are today. Fed funds was five and a quarter. Uh, the treasury market was in and around 5%. Um, and in that scenario, if you were a new investor today and you committed capital to a, a short duration muni strategy with two years of duration risk, earning about 2.6% in yield, you know, a move to those levels all the way back to 2007 of three and three quarters, uh, you would more than make up that price move with the total carry that you've earned in your mini portfolio over a one-year hold period. So uh, certainly more could come, but but a heck of a lot's been priced in. Are you surprised at all just that there hasn't, the market hasn't been more grabby? I mean, you, you obviously like talked about where ratios were last year, like 65%, which is obscenely rich. And then they blow out by like, 40%, right? So you're now at almost like 100, you know, even higher than that on the long end. And to me, it's sort of surprising that all the people who were saying last year that they were buying bonds, you know, being forced to at those levels, weren't jumping into the market in the last few weeks, you know, as things got appreciably cheaper. Um, I'm just sort of wondering, like, in your thought, like, why are people still sitting on the sidelines? Right? I mean, you, you sort of throw out a lot of numbers in addition to that, that are compelling. Yeah, well, look, I, I think crossover investors are, are not sitting on the sidelines. If you're a, a bank or insurance company and you have a 15 to 21% effective tax rate, yeah. uh, you know, I, I think you're actively buying. You know, the, the flip side is if you're a, a fund that did not have a lot of cash or didn't have sufficient cash relative to the size of, of this outflow period, um, you may not have the opportunity or the ability to, to add. Um, the strategies that don't offer daily liquidity are in a very different position. Um, just one example, we launched an interval fund here at PIMCO several years ago that offers quarterly liquidity. Um, so, you know, those strategies are, are few and far between, but I think they have the ability to behave and act a bit differently. And there's, uh, you know, a, a target rich environment right now with, with, with plenty of opportunities if you do have dry powder. You mentioned that you were at 10 to 15% cash last year. I mean, did you guys... I guess, take any lessons away from 
March and April of 2020 and just say, you know, as we sort of got into January of this year and say, oh no, not again, you know, we're going to raise our cash now. I feel like that's at least the story I've been hearing from a lot of the funds that they just didn't want to get caught off sides again. Yeah. So, you know, we were in the neighborhood of uh, 10 to high teens percent cash pre-COVID. Um, okay. You know, the reason that we were is we use a, a cross-market framework here at PIMCO. We're not just looking at unis versus treasuries. Our uh, large credit team, they, uh, they underwrite credit across many asset classes. Munis are just one of them. And we're constantly comparing uh, PIMCO's internal credit rating and the option-adjusted spread on a bond, not just muni to muni, but munis to other markets. And, and in early 2020, muni stood out as uh, exceptionally rich, even richer in some parts of the market than 2021. High-yield munis, for example, were so rich that yeah. On an after-tax basis, an investor did better off in high-yield corporate bonds and high-yield muni bonds. Yeah. That doesn't happen very often. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, going back to, to really 2013, 14, 15 was when we structurally changed the way we run our portfolios um, to, to ensure that we have you know, excess liquidity when valuations are rich because it's hard to predict the future. Uh, we don't know what will happen, but we do have confidence that uh, munis will overcorrect in both directions, which achieved due to the lack of liquidity in the market. Okay. And is there a cash level that you have currently? You know, I, I can't comment on, on exact cash levels uh, across strategy. What I can tell you is we're still holding a lot of excess uh, capital relative to, to what we would in a, you know, a less volatile environment. Okay. You know, with stocks getting hammered over the last few weeks, I mean, does this is this a period where you would anticipate seeing more money come into these, you know, tax exempt or even just taxable muni strategies uh, as people sort of seek like havens? Yeah, you know, it's the economy and, and capital markets have transitioned from, you know, I think many investors questioning, are we mid-cycle or late cycle to what we yeah. believe it's really a, a late cycle investing environment at PIMCO. You know, we tend to really like high quality munis uh, in this environment, you know, for a couple of different reasons. You know, one is that they have much lower correlations to the equity market than investment grade corporate bonds or high yield corporate bonds. So I think the answer there is yes. Um, and they also generally have uh, much lower uh, default probabilities when you do become more concerned about a recession and you're contemplating your own asset allocation yeah. decisions. Uh, you know, munis have much lower default rates. The muni credit cycle is the best it's ever been. You know, we've touched on that a little bit, but yeah. there are Many examples probably know better than the state of Illinois upgraded two times and the state of New Jersey making its full pension payment a couple of years in a row, first time since the 90s. Yeah. Um, so that is even more true today. And then historically, late cycle rates do rise. Uh, Fed increases rates and munis have a history of outperforming during Fed hiking cycles over the fullness of a cycle. Um, whether you go back to 2015 uh, uh, to, to 18 or even the cycle before that, pre-financial crisis, the Fed increased rates by 400 plus basis points. Investment grade munis over that time period had positive absolute returns of seven to 9% without adjusting for taxes. And high yield munis were somewhere in the mid twenties, you know, again, without adjusting for taxes. So yeah. uh, this is an environment that, that we think when things stabilize, munis become increasingly attractive versus other, uh, other investable asset classes. Do you think folks are still surprised that when they, when they hear about corporate bonds, right? And I feel like these crossover asset buyers is probably like more in their wheelhouse. They see spreads just blowing out, right? That, that sector has been really abused. And then you go run option adjusted spreads for high yield munis and they're only higher by like, I don't know, 20, 30 basis points on the year. I mean, they're really 
disparate credit stories to tell in those two sectors. Um, you know, are people surprised when they see the numbers you know, next to each other? Yeah, you know, I think there's a bit of a misnomer in, in, in the high yield muni market, generally speaking, right? So yeah. uh, high yield muni can mean a lot of different things. There's a lot of different yeah. strategies out there. And some do have, uh, you know, majority double B or lower muni holdings. Uh, many of, of them, including our own, you know, tend to run somewhere in the uh, 50 or 60% of investment grade uh, muni bonds have an average rating at the portfolio level of somewhere around low triple B. Yeah. And low triple B munis default, you know, less frequently than A-rated corporate bonds. So I think there, you know, is a bit of a disconnect just in, in kind of naming convention. Yeah. Um, you know, we see many parts of the high yield muni market today as, as you know, much wider in option adjusted spread. Uh, you know, a couple examples of some of the more liquid names that, you know, we like in our portfolios, Puerto Rico Cofina sales tax bonds, uh, zero coupon bond with a 2046 or 51 maturity and a 2028 call. This is a, a post-bankruptcy obligation that, you know, we believe has a path to an IG rating over the next several years and a high probability that it gets refinanced, um, yeah. you know, before or at its 2028 call date. You know, those are trading between 550 and 575 tax-free yield. Yeah. Those are tax exempt at the, the federal, state, uh, and local level. Mm -hmm. So for, uh, yeah. you know, a, an investor in Texas, that's nine plus percent tax equivalent yield. Uh, for an investor in California, New York, that's, that's low double digits. So, you know, we do see these opportunities as really kind of outsized and, and attractive now. Um. David, I'm curious. Um, there's been one mystery that I wanted to run by you, which is just that um, muni ETFs have seen just like such huge inflows this year. Um, and, you know, I bring this up to people and a lot of them, maybe not, maybe they don't, they're not in ETF land. So maybe that's why they don't know. But it seems like it's a big mystery in the market as to why funds like MUB, VTEB are seeing so much in inflows and just kind of the space in general has seen, I think, maybe nearly 9 billion in inflows this year. Do you have any theories on why this is happening? And is this from investors looking at how attractive munis are, or is there something technical and weird going on that we should know about? Yeah. So, you know, we manage a number of active ETFs. We, we don't manage passive ETFs here at PIMCO, but uh, that's been a more popular uh, product solution for, for, for many investors in, in recent years. You know, my guess is what's going on right now is, is simply tax loss harvesting. Um, one of the big benefits in an environment like this is that uh, muni investors can tax loss swap and move from one fund into another and maintain a risk profile. At the portfolio level, you know, we're doing tons of this in these environments. Uh, we like to, to tax loss swap our individual holdings. That allows us to do two things. Number one, uh, increase yields. And so that the distribution yield that we can pay out to investors rises as we reset our cost basis. And then the second is we can uh, build up a, a war chest of deferred tax losses. We can use those to offset active trading gains. Uh, so in the future, when we're you know, more active uh, and there are uh, securities at a game, we can use these losses that we're creating now um, to offset those gains. So, so that's my guess what the you know primary reason is of, of flows out of open-end funds and indeed tests. Yeah, maybe I'll just add there too that, that I think uh, you know perhaps at the model level um, where big platforms make uh, model allocation decisions and ETF models, you know, munis are screening is attractive and, and and perhaps there is a bias there to begin allocating more today. Okay. It's interesting. We 
if you look at sort of the distribution of flows, Amanda, and I feel like, you know, we've talked about this before, you've seen a lot in the short ETFs as well. I mean, David, do you have any thought on like the, I've always sort of noodled that a lot of the SMA platforms are using these really short ETFs as sort of a placeholder now, you know, to sort of avoid catching a falling knife, right? So they can get immediate sort of exposure to the municipal market and then sort of peel off as things come up opportunistically. You know, some may do that. We have a really large SMA business here and we run accounts you know, as large as 10 billion all the way down to 150,000. And, yeah. uh, you know, we don't do that. And the reason that we don't is that one of the benefits of a separately managed account in an environment like this is new capital committed to it. You can be a price setter. You can step into the market. You can buy a security that uh, credit fundamentals are attractive its analytics are attractive and you can still, you know, potentially buy it much cheaper just because of the illiquidity premium. So, uh, you know, we don't do that. You know, it, it's possible some do, but, but I think that's probably a missed opportunity if they're, they're using it instead of buying individual cash units right now. You just mentioned the SMA business. So it's good segue to congratulate you guys on sort of finalizing that Girton acquisition, uh, bringing them into the fold. You know, the SMA business is super interesting to me in the fact that if you don't do it and scale it right, it's really death by a thousand cuts because it's hard to scale. Um, but on the flip side, it seems to be one of the places that money is still coming in uh, on a positive flow basis in the muni market this year. Uh, and it, it tells a very good story, you know, in light of what we're seeing on the fund outflows. You know, are you guys seeing that as well? Um, we're hearing that from other SMA platforms that they're, you know, actually up this year. Yeah, we, we are. We're seeing positive flows into SMAs. And, you know, many of those investors are coming out of cash or coming out of uh, T-bills where munis were, were quite rich to treasuries at the front end of the curve last year. It looks very different today, about 250 basis points of tax equivalent yield pickup. Um, you know, we're excited about the, the Girton acquisition. You know, they were fully integrated into to PIMCO some time back now. Yeah. And one of the reasons that um, we embarked on this acquisition was to improve and enhance both our technology and, and client service uh, while keeping a, you know, a relatively low fee um, across our, our SMA vehicles. And, and you know, you're, you're dead on. It, it can be death by a thousand cuts if it's not uh, appropriately scaled. And you need great technology to do it. Um, we use technology more and more in our investment process day in, day out. So this can be uh, big databases that, that help connect our credit analysts that allow us to help uh, prioritize our workflow and keep everybody connected and warehousing information in one place. Uh, on the portfolio management side, we use technology uh, more and more frequently and actually the way that we execute. Uh, we are scraping prices from all different providers in the street. These can be through APIs or uh, ECNs or just uh, prices that we receive over Bloomberg. Uh, and then in many cases, actually electronically uh, executing with these, uh, you know, best bids or best offers. Limited liquidity in the mini market also means that there's going to be more competition for what liquidity is there. Sure. Um, so we think it's important not just to you know, identify a good bid or a good offer, make sure that you're getting to it uh, before others. Uh, we've seen big improvement in efficiencies. Uh, take the new issue process as an example. You know, four or five years ago, most muni portfolio managers and investment teams were taking scales that underwriters would send them, manually transposing those numbers into a, some sort of internal system. Yeah. You know, today, we're buying direct feeds that allows us to quickly match up our internal PIMCO rating, 
our internal PIMCO analytics and, and just move, uh, move very quickly. And then of course, on the SMA side, you know, it's also uh, improved the types of solutions that we can offer to investors. Um, in the ladder space, we can do, you know, heavily customizable ladders, any combination of rungs, credit quality, um, in the non-laddered space, and, and Girton had a number of these strategies that, that we think are, you know, really smart that, that we brought into PIMCO, uh, more focused on exploiting mispriced callable bonds. This is another structural inefficiency that we see in the muni market, a way to harvest some structural alpha without taking additional uh, credit risk or, or uh, duration risk. But, you know, to manage these strategies, you, you need really good technology, you need really good optimizers and really fast execution. Um, and then the you know, client service piece here is just as important. We use technology to support uh, our clients, who in some cases are individuals. A lot of times are financial advisors. And financial advisors, uh, particularly in an environment like this, they need information quickly. How is my portfolio performing? What have been some uh, con uh, contributions to performance, detractors? And they need it in a format that they can go ahead and share with clients. And so the uh, you know, this client service model that the Gurdon team built, we brought over to PIMCO. It's been really helpful in supporting some of our, our biggest clients here at the firm. Um, you touched on this earlier in, in the podcast, but um, so our, our last podcast episode featured um, TD, TD Securities, their automated trading team um, focused on munis. Um, and so we kind of learned a little bit more about that world. Um, what do you make of the rise of automated trading and like the potential for more like portfolio trading technology, um, that type of thing? Yeah, we think it's great. You know, we're, we're set up to, to capitalize on it. We're, we're connected directly with uh, TD amongst you know many other providers of of liquidity, um, and it does mean that we can get more prices electronically. We can get to them faster. Um, I, I think the one you know kind of cautionary tale here is that they haven't increased the total amount of liquidity in the muni market. Um, so in environments like this, they're uh, you know they're they're less relevant. Um, but it's something that you know we think has been a, a nice addition to the market, um, and it really highlights just how important it is to be. Uh, connected directly, the ability to execute electronically. You know, the days of uh, trying to execute most of your muni bond trades over instant Bloomberg or voice, you know, those are rapidly coming to a close. What's your feeling on portfolio trading? I mean, obviously it's bigger in the corporate space and just sort of in its infancy in the muni area, um, but we're hearing more and more about it. Um, you know, are you, is that something that you guys are looking to sort of work with going forward to just be more nimble? Um, you know, and especially, you know, when you talk about a strategy like such as SMAs, where it's like, you're trying to do a lot at one time, um, you know, could it lead to better pricing? Yeah. You know, we do a lot of portfolio trading here in the corporate space. Um, yeah. and we're, you know, pretty enthusiastic about this expanding to the municipal space. Um, you know, we're doing a, you know, almost a quasi portfolio trade often today where we're looking at an optimized, uh, set of bonds. And we're going out and buying those bonds to create and build a portfolio, yeah. but we're still mostly buying them one at a time from individual liquidity providers. Okay. Um, you know, we haven't seen a lot of yet. And I say, yeah, because I think this will happen is uh, individual and entire portfolios offered from a single liquidity provider through a single customer. Um, I think eventually the mini market will get there and it'll be a you know, really an excellent development just to uh, reduce liquidity costs in a market where it can be expensive to transact. Yeah. I mean, you guys have been a huge proponent of tobacco bonds. Um, you guys have a great primer out there. Um, 
been like a key staple to your strategies in, in the high yield space. You know, every year, I would say over the last couple of years, we've seen these stories about a ban on menthol or, or a ban on this or a ban on that. Is there anything that could really sort of hurt that sector um, at this point? Because it doesn't seem like anything that comes out from a headline view is really impacting pricing. So I guess I'm just curious, you know, obviously the biggest issue there is really just extension of duration. You know, what's your thought on the credit piece? Yeah, well, the, the, the composition of the credits that exist in the MSA tobacco space changed a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, MSA <laughs> tobacco bonds, they're, they're not muni bonds, they're structured products issued in tax exempt form. So at PIMCO, we take uh, each individual security, we build out a model and a waterfall. We take different uh, scenarios around smoking consumption. You know, our, our bear case scenario, it includes a menthol ban. We think investors should be prepared for that. Okay. Uh, it also includes a you know, recessionary shock of, of 10 plus percent in a single year, which is what we saw in 2009. Um, what you'll find is that, you know, going back, you know, five or six years ago, there were a lot of tobacco bonds that screened as exceptionally attractive because even in those scenarios, uh, their final maturity may have been extended, but they were trading at deep discounts mm -hmm. and your tax attempt IRRs were still in the high single digits. You know, many of those, uh, those higher risk transactions, they've been refinanced over the last few years and they've been turned into investment grade yeah. uh, muni risks that are much more resilient. So the, the, Majority of the market five years ago had a, a break-even consumption decline rate of three and a half or four percent. Today, there are uh, you know large parts of the universe that have break-even consumption declines of ten plus percent. So these are yeah. you know very resilient bonds. That the, the uh, portion of the market that we think is the most attractive right now, uh, it's those that are trading at a, a deep discount. A lot of these are zero coupon bonds, um, but benefit from faster amortizations or paydowns due to the increase in inflation. Uh, MSA tobacco payments, there, there's two components. One is the number of cigarettes sold, mm -hmm. uh, but the other is inflation. It's floored at 3% CPI, but to the extent it's higher than that, there's extra cash flow that's going into these trusts to, to pay down bonds faster. And MSA tobacco bonds have been a, a beneficiary of the inflationary environment last year. They will be again this year. And that's actually improving the credit quality uh, on many of these bonds. So if you can, you know, the, the sweet spot really is a, uh, a deep discount bond that's trading at 60 yeah. or 70 cents on the dollar uh, is going to receive faster amortization at par. And you put that together and there are opportunities to invest in, you know, mid six to mid 7% range tax-free IRRs with uh, weighted average lives of 10 to 15 years. Yeah. So between Jeffries and inflation, you know, that sector has really benefited, I guess. Yeah, there's a few, you know, the other one would be housing. Yeah. Um, you know, we tend to really like the housing uh, sector here at, at PIMCO. We have a very large housing team yeah. um, that offers insights to our muni team on uh, individual commercial real estate projects, residential real estate, uh, multifamily housing, affordable housing. Uh, and this is an area that's, you know, benefited from rent growth over the last few years, uh, particularly affordable housing and uh, essential housing. These are, you know, areas of the, the market where there is still a housing shortage. Occupancies are 95, 96, 97%. Yeah. Uh, and we're seeing reasonable rent growth. So, so these are, you know, portions of the market that um, historically we've liked, but we like even a little bit more now. And then maybe just the last I would add is at the local level, um, you know, most school bonds in the muni market, they're backed by property taxes. Those yeah. property taxes are a function of 
uh, assess values. And, and last year, house price appreciation was 10 to 15% in many parts of the country. Assess values rise much more slowly. So we see um, in the higher quality portion of the market, the local level, you know, potential for many of these bonds to receive upgrades over the next several years as assess values begin to catch up to, to mark to market property values. Yeah, obviously a little bit of an offshoot of housing, but student housing. Um, you know, it's an area that came under fire during the pandemic as colleges emptied out. Obviously, occupancies have returned, but I feel like to me, the bigger question is, has sort of the value proposition of traditional four-year model changed at all? Um, you know, especially sort of given the fact that you can do so much on a remote basis. You know, is that something that you guys are looking at differently? Yeah, well, well, student housing was an area that we were, you know, underweight pre-pandemic. And, and the reason is that a lot of, uh, it's been a popular asset class for real estate developers. And we saw a lot of projects that were being built, you know, give you an example, like near a commuter school that has 80% commuters, uh, you know, with promises of uh, luxurious living and lots of amenities and really optimistic uh, assumptions around occupancy and, uh, and rents that they would be able to charge. And we've seen a number of downgrades and in, in defaults in those. This has all been made worse by uh, by COVID, it's still an area that we're, we're cautious on, you know, the, the work from home phenomenon and what that means to the muni market, you know, the, the areas that we're you know, probably the most cautious on in the traditional muni space are, are big cities. Um, yeah. It's not that we think that there will be you know, massive defaults here, but we do see a lot of risk that's not in the price when we look out over three to five years. Over the next one to two years, uh, they are flush with cash. We think, you know, budgets won't come under much pressure. Yeah, uh, but we don't yet know how fast you know individuals will return to offices in major cities. How fast economic activity will rebound, uh, and that does leave the the potential of some out year budget deficits that we don't see in the price today. You, I feel like um, we don't hear that point um, made very often. I guess because of all the stimulus cash coming in. Um, so have you backed off? You know. I, we can talk kind of maybe broadly. Have you backed off some of those large cities, like think New York, like? What has that kind of meant from a trading perspective with the rise of work from home? Yeah, we have. You know, those are areas that we've we've reduced. Um, you know, our, our framework here at PIMCO, we we take a a forward looking view on what we think uh, you know might happen in our base case and some risks around those scenarios. Our our credit analysts are uh, then using those forecasts to assign a a letter rating, probability of default, loss given default. And what we've seen are just, you know, some gaps in between uh, our own internal, you know, views and maybe where market prices are today, uh, where much of this risk has been trading, like, you know, very strong AA rated bonds. Um, so we viewed it as, you know, a good opportunity to, to reduce um, just on, uh, on tactical valuations more than anything else. Okay. Interesting. Um, really quickly, wanted to touch on the Puerto Rico story. Um, I know Puerto Rico is a big um holding of your high yield fund, um, you know, kind of benefiting also from stimulus aid, like what, what's your view on Puerto Rico these days, which I know is a broad question, but um, I'll just let you talk about PR. Yeah, well, you know, we have a long history of, uh, of Puerto Rico here at PIMCO. We're proud of the fact that we avoided the, the bankruptcy, um, you know, way back in, in 2013, when they were first downgraded. And, and a lot of that credit goes not just to our muni team, but inputs from our uh, our EM team, we looked at Puerto Rico as a sovereign and compared it to other you know, countries, not just U.S. states. Um, what has become more interesting in Puerto Rico as they've moved towards bankruptcy is that uh, 
uh, many of their post-bankruptcy obligations began to, to screen as attractive for us here. And, you know, we tend to really like post-bankruptcy muni bonds. Um, Jefferson County, Alabama is another that, that comes to mind. There's a, a confluence of factors here. One is that uh, many agencies typically that were burned by the, the default, they're very unlikely to rate these bonds or, or rate them lower than their, their credit profile might imply. Uh, many muni investors that were burned by the default, they're unlikely to buy them back, or if they do, buy them back in the same size that they allocated to them pre-bankruptcy. Um, but the, the credit protections for investors, they improve, leverage is reduced, and you're left with a, a more secure and more sustainable investment. And we see all of these things coming into play in Puerto Rico. Um, Puerto Rico Cofina sales tax, which I, you know, I mentioned already, um, that's one that we think has a path to an investment grade rating. It's not rated by the agencies today. Um, you know, if it was uh, anything not named Puerto Rico, we think it would likely already be there. And it still trades at a much higher uh, yield because it's not rated and investors are, you know, potentially still unwilling to own it. My, my you know, prediction for the next several years is that eventually those bonds will migrate into uh, investment grade state-specific funds like New York funds and California funds. Uh, and that will begin to, to ratchet spreads in from where they stand today. And, and we see, you know, really similar things occurring in many parts of the general obligation bonds where they exited bankruptcy earlier this year, all the way down to the contingent value instruments. And these are uh, subordinate claims on sales taxes. Uh, they were negotiated as, as part of the bankruptcy settlement and the, uh, the oversight board and the, and the Commonwealth and creditors, when they were crafting a fiscal plan back in 2000 and uh, 20 after the pandemic, you know, the assumption was that sales taxes would decline by uh, 10, 20% over the next few years, but uh, sales taxes have actually increased broadly across the economy over the last few years. So we see these uh, contingent value claims on sales taxes being worth a lot more than what was initially expected. All right. I know we're running close on time. Um, just a couple quick last questions here. We run a chat on the terminal um, and inevitably every time we have a guest on, they submit questions. So we'll just run through a few. Um, one, uh, better band, Fish or Grateful Dead? Grateful Dead. Okay, perfect. How much do you bench? 220. Yeah, perfect. Lastly, do you still see value in bond insurance? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. You know, if the if the credit quality of the bond insurer is better than the underlying rating, we see value in it. Um, because much of the muni market is, is so high quality and implied default rates are so low, you know, I think it limits to us you know, where it's useful, but, uh, you know, but, but it's uh, you know, part of the process and we do think there's a role for it in the muni market. Great. Last question, um, what keeps you up at night in the market? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's interest rate volatility and uh, and liquidity. You know, it, it's really not credit this beauty cycle, which is totally different. Uh, you know, after the financial crisis, it was local credit and housing. Uh, we have had a, a negative credit story in the muni market during every other outflow cycle of the last decade. Detroit, Puerto Rico, uh, Illinois, and Chicago at different times. And it's really not the case this time. So it's just it, it's rates and vol and, and managing around liquidity. Um, well, at the same time, you know, trying to take advantage of, uh, of a, a really rich opportunity set in the mini market today. Got it. Awesome. Thank you so much, David Hammer, PIMCO, Amanda Albright, Bloomberg News. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks, Eric. Thanks.